let us take up the sure and certain truth of God's word. Turn with me, if you will, to the very first chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 1. During this Christmas month, we are employing the remarkable work of hymn writer Charles Wesley to guide our study of the scriptures on the wondrous and deep theology of the Christmas event, the birth of our Savior. If you were with us last Lord's Day, you know that we extracted Wesley's phrase from the first stanza, and we sang it again this morning, God and sinners reconciled. We found that any other understanding of the meaning of Christmas than that simply would fail to underscore the birth of Christ as the main event in the history of redemption that began all the way back in Genesis 1. I suggested to you at that time that it's not just the Gospels that we glean so much concerning the birth of Christ. The promise of his coming began as early as the first chapters of the book of Genesis. In fact, I made the comment, and I like hearing it myself, I'll repeat it, that virtually, if you think about this with me, everything after the third chapter of the book of Genesis, in other words, all of the rest of the Bible, and I'm not excluding the first three chapters, it's just that you know what devastating reality they record, and And so I suggested that everything after the third chapter of the beginning of the Bible is the story of God's mercy. Everything is mercy after the fall of our first parents. And that's why it must include, even in seed form, you remember, the promise of one who would come to destroy the works of the devil. Now, if the birth of the Christ child was the main event, then to consider the nature of that child, born of a virgin by the name of Mary, to consider that, to look where angels even look and somehow are left to wonder, is to wade even deeper, I think, into the wonder and the mystery of Christmas. It is this doctrine, the doctrine of the incarnation of God himself. Last Lord's Day, we studied the doctrine of reconciliation, that God's purpose is to reconcile sinners to himself. And as we go a little further now, We are understanding that he will do that by no less an extraordinary personal intervention into that fallen world, taking upon himself flesh, God incarnate coming among us. The event was Advent. The event of the birth of Christ was God's Advent, his coming 
into the world. How did Wesley put it in the second verse, which is where we are today? I love the phrase. So saturated with biblical truth was all of Wesley's hymn. But he writes, as we sang, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. And you probably all know by now that that designation, Emmanuel, literally interpreted means God with us. It's as though we almost need to say these things in hushed tones. Jesus Christ. First, the baby, actually, Jesus Christ being formed in embryo in the womb of a teenage girl, a virgin. Jesus Christ, the baby, and then the man, very man, is actually God, very God, God in the flesh, veiled, Wesley says. And so what the multitude saw, of course, was just another human being, the one with whom the disciples, as you know, could walk and talk. They could recline with him at table. They could eat and drink. They were often camping out in their journeys under the stars with God, the very maker of heaven and earth. The theologians need for, and this is a good thing, for accuracy, distills a multitude of biblical references into a precise statement. I am very helped by such scholars of greater mind and ability than my own. I want to say to you, I think still, one of the better historic confessions of faith is that given to us by what were called the Westminster Divines. Uh, divine is sort of like having the name Reverend in front of your name, which I rarely use except when I'm trying to get something for free in the marketplace. No, I'm just kidding on that. Uh, the Westminster Divine simply means they were theologians on behalf of the people of God. And it was back in 1646 they were producing a great work of condensing into very careful and exact statements, truths that the Bible actually teaches. Some people say, well, all I need is my Bible. How many of you like the King James Version. How many? I wonder. I won't ask for a show of hands. I wouldn't be surprised. Some are so proud they just raised their hand. But the point being, you love your King James Version and you should. It probably is still the best among English translations of the Bible. Now, I struggle a bit myself with the archaic language, the King James language. I'm thankful for scholarship through the years, which renders many passages of Scripture just a little bit more uh, easy to understand and even points to, a, in some cases, greater accuracy in translation. But the King James Version, if you like your 1611 King James Version, 
God bless you. I do, too. It's the Bible I grew up with. And what I want to share with you now, the same divines, uh, the same biblical scholars who gave you and me in the world the King James Version 35 years, only 35 after they produced that translation, they gave to us this Westminster Confession of Faith in 16. 46. I'd like to read to you a paragraph of their work concerning the doctrine that is before us this morning at this Christmas time concerning the incarnation of God. That is the person of Jesus Christ. Here's what they wrote for our help. They said the son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very And eternal God, one of substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him, this is Jesus, man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof. Yet, what do you know? Without sin. Being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance so that two whole, perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood were inseparably joined together in one Person, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Now, I know that's not scripture. That's a summary of biblical truth. But how many of God's people want to say amen? Amen. It's good work. Exactness. Right understanding. Of this great doctrine. I know that it's pretty heady stuff and everything that I've said up until now may be less than somehow personally gripping in the everyday place of your, well, Mondays and Tuesdays as you count down the days to Christmas. But I I do hope to stir up together our sanctified thoughts, if you will, about the deity of Christ and demonstrate for you that this is, as was last Lord's Day's truth, essential. This is essential truth and it is meant to give a and produce a profound impact in the way that we live our lives. Now, there are many passages of Scripture that leave no doubt whatsoever about the true nature of Christ and specifically the deity of Christ. But I think of all the places in the Bible, none is quite as compact with the glorious truth than the words that are given to us by the Apostle John, by the Holy Spirit, as he introduces this gospel, the gospel according to John. The way the gospel begins is like an introduction to God in the person 
of Christ. Uh, Quite an undertaking for the Apostle John. An introduction to God himself in the person of Christ. And I want us to read together. Most of you probably could quote this from memory. The first five verses of the first chapter of John. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light, that's Jesus, shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Tucked away, by the way, there in the original language, some rightly would render that phrase that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness couldn't put it out. The darkness couldn't overcome it. Take the deepest darkness you could even imagine. This light that comes into such darkness is a light that will not, it cannot be extinguished. Now, I want you to work with me a little bit this morning. And first, we're going to lay out the the theological study of God, theological foundation for this doctrine of the incarnation. And then I promise this, that the truth in the text, if you'll work with me in this, will reward you on a very personal level. No one ever learns more about the nature and the character of God without receiving the benefit in a very personal and so very often life-changing, life-transforming way. So in this brief text, we have five of the most sublime statements concerning the true nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to try to give them to you quickly because these are the points of truth, the application of which we'll also see in a few moments. Well, we look at John's revelation here in this first chapter and just in these five verses alone, let me give you five statements of truth that we discern in the five verses. Number one, our Lord Jesus Christ. You need to know this about your Savior. Our Lord Jesus Christ is eternal, eternal. Now, I know the the Bible promises us, doesn't it, that if we will believe in Christ, we will what? Inherit an eternal life or actually an everlasting life. But this word eternal referring to Christ means that he always was, always is and always shall be because he is, in fact, God, though Come in the flesh, he is eternal. 
That's what John means when he says, in the beginning was the word. Some rightly uh, translate that even before the beginning, certainly before. How do I know he existed before the world as eternal? Because of what Genesis records concerning the very creation itself. In John chapter 17, Jesus speaks, Jesus speaks of the glory he had with the Father, listen, before the world was. And as we'll see in a moment in those five verses we read, there's absolutely nothing that is that ever came into being apart from this person, Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune God. So mark it down. He is not just an everlasting Lord. He is the eternal Lord of glory. Secondly, our Lord Jesus Christ is clearly the second person of the God that is described as a trinity, the triune God. That's what John's doing there with language that if you read it too quickly and don't let it sink in, could make your head spin almost. The word was with God. Okay. But when it says the word was with God and was God, you're getting into that wondrous mystery of what it means that God exists as one, but in three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So we have the truth of John telling us that he's not only with God, indeed, he was God. He is at the same time a distinct person from God the Father, yet one with him. And of course, that in itself is a great and wondrous mystery. Thirdly, our Lord Jesus Christ is very God. The theologians in their attempts to be exact, as well as those Westminster divines, want us to understand that when they talk about Jesus as God, they mean really God. I understand this morning that someone came into our sanctuary uh, during the Sunday school hour and asked one of our people how to get to the kingdom hall of Jehovah's Witnesses. And I said, did you tell them? (laughs) And of course, that was the right thing to do. They're directly across the street. I've often observed that the front doors of our place of worship here almost match the front doors of the kingdom hall just across the street. I don't know what kind of Christmas messages they're hearing at this time of the year, but their theologians would say Jesus Christ is a son of God, but not the son of God. There's a lot more I could say. It is a cult. Stay away from that place. And the next sometime someone should ask you for directions, tell them they're in the right place. They should stay right here, perhaps, and hear the truth. Our Lord Jesus Christ is very God. The word was God. Everything you could ever know about God, the Bible is saying, is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. He is nothing less than complete, perfect God, equal to the Father as relating to his Godhead. 
because time is always doing battle with me, I would read for you at this time Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. But instead, I'll simply give you the reference. It's a good Christmas meditation. One of these mornings or days leading up to Christmas, you should meditate much on Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. But basically, that's a passage that's telling us that while God revealed himself in many different ways over the course of time in this last time, the last time that God would seek to reveal who he is to his people, he revealed himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number four, our Lord Jesus Christ is the creator. He is the creator of all things. John says, by him were all things made. And he underscores it and said, nothing exists but what Jesus Christ, the creator, brought it into existence. When you open the first chapters of the book of Genesis and you see God say, let there be light. And then all the rest of what he creates with just a spoken word in the next five days of creation, six altogether. Understand that is your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in his pre-incarnate place in the Trinity, the actual words that were spoken were spoken by none other than Jesus Christ. He's your creator. Number five, our Lord Jesus Christ is the source, the fountainhead, the source of all spiritual life and light. That's tucked away in the last couple of verses there, one through five of this first chapter of John. Well, of course, we've just said that Jesus Christ is the source of all things, whether they be living, animate things or just things like the stones and the rocks. He's the creator of all. But what John wants to get to before he goes any further in his revelation here in this gospel is to tell us this one as light has come into the world and he lights that is, he gives life to those bound in darkness. He brings eternal life to everyone that the Father has given to him. Now, I did that rather quickly. Those were five statements laying the foundation for the doctrinal or theological aspects. Oh, much more could be said on this, but I really want to get to the heart application of these truths as well, one of my Christmas gifts to you, if you will, really, it's not mine to give, but it's the Lord who has revealed himself. So we had five theological points of truth. Let's apply them in five ways and then we'll tuck it away in our hearts and go on our way this morning. Number one, since Jesus Christ is eternal, since Jesus Christ is eternal, we can trust that what was true concerning him in the first century when John wrote this, even better, what was true concerning Jesus, concerning God before he created the world is true right now and always will be. That's the nature of his eternality. We worship a changeless savior. 
He is Jesus Christ, the same yesterday. Three of you are with me. Very good. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Number two. Since Jesus Christ is God, expressed in an inseparable trinity, listen to this, you and I can know that all that God is, is for us, for you, as you embrace, by faith, the person of Jesus Christ. You embrace The Son, God come in the flesh, and you know what? You get the Father. You get all that the Holy Spirit, in all of His wondrous workings, you receive Christ, and you receive Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all three persons of this one God are on your side In everything, in every circumstance, takes God to do that in your life. It's what the Apostle Paul meant over there in Romans 8. Listen, if God be for us, who or what could possibly be against us? Amen. Thirdly, since Jesus Christ is very God... You can know God in a personal way because Jesus is the person of God. A personal relationship with God through your personal relationship to Jesus. I sometimes think we take that for granted. I often did. You know how we ask people sometimes, do you know Jesus Christ as what? Your own personal Lord and Savior. I said that to to one who professes faith in Christ. I count him a dear brother some time ago. uh, And and we were talking and he suddenly said to me, uh, personal. He said, no, 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 no. A very emphatic friend I have. He said, he said, "I, I wouldn't dare to say that I. Now, he was being humble, you see, or at least trying to be. He thought it was too much to ask that he, as one person, sinner at that, would dare to say that he has something personal in his relationship to God. We we take for granted that, and it's one of the reasons I wanted to mention it. It is a very personal Lord and Savior, and with him comes all of who God is. Keep those thoughts together. You and I have God with skin on. We do not have to exercise, for surely we would get it wrong, our imaginations in order to know we're relating personally to God. We have a man. We have a man came into the world the same way you and I did formed in a womb nine months later, born into this world, fingers and toes, a man, a very man, the theologians again would say, and I 
can say, I have even experienced what it is to have a personal relationship where the Bible describes elsewhere the invisible God now made personal because God became a man. Fourthly, since Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. Now, that's a pretty big deal. All that exists, God didn't say, hmm, there's some junk floating around here in space. And I think if I combine it in such a way and send the angels out and they bring it all together and, and I know what it will take to cause some great big explosion, a big bang, if you will, to bring about what we know is our world, but that's not at all the record of Scripture. Six days. And God said, God said, and it was, and God said, and God said, and it was, and God said, and on the sixth day, and God said, he just spoke. And it was. If that's true, and he is our personal Lord and Savior, then I have a God for whom absolutely nothing is impossible. So when the darkest night descends upon my soul, when, for example, put it this way, a parent's worst nightmare were to occur, that having God, the creator of all things, I know, that he will only need to speak a word and I will be sustained in another day. The father of faith, the example for all time, is Abraham. And God made him an incredible promise. But was it not God who, when he was making the promise, gave Abraham every reason to believe that old Sarah and old Abraham would actually get pregnant together and have a baby. Do you know how God approached him? He said, Abram, I am God. I am the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Everything that you see that is came to be in a mere spoken word. Nothing is too hard for our God. Fifthly and finally, since Jesus Christ is, as we said, the source of all life and light, a sinner can be called out of darkness into his marvelous light and can be the new creation, a new life, a walk in the light as he is in the light. Where John says elsewhere, we have fellowship with one another. And he didn't mean us having fellowship with one another. That's a wonderful truth. But when John wrote those words, he was talking about God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit, and us having fellowship with him, the source of life and light. Veiled in flesh, Wesley says. The Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. 
Jesus Christ is real. The Christmas story is true. That in the fullness of time, God robed himself in flesh. Dwells among us. And all that God is, Jesus is for us.